We are in our message series on the life of Jesus, the time Jesus spent on the earth as a man on his mission to restore the broken relationship between man and God. And this mission is documented in four books we find inside the Bible, and these books are collectively referred to as the Gospels. Today we're going to begin in chapter 28 of the Gospel of Matthew. And as we pick up our study, Jesus is alive. He's risen from the dead, proving that his sacrifice on the cross was acceptable to God, has paid for our sins, and that we are forgiven. Mary Magdalene has seen the risen Jesus face to face, as have the group of women who went to visit the tomb with her. They've told the disciples that Jesus is alive, but at this point, John is the only disciple who believes. Studying for this message was a, was a real joy for me. It always is, but I was especially struck by how much Jesus enjoyed his time on the earth after his resurrection. There are little hints all over the place that he's having so much fun meeting with his brothers and sisters and experiencing their shock and their joy. He opens the eyes of Mary Magdalene to recognize him by speaking his name, and he waits for that moment. He materializes out of thin air in front of the group of women who are returning from the empty tomb and tells them, rejoice. And we'll see these joy-filled appearances continue in today's study. So as we read through the scriptures today, I want to encourage you to make sure that the Jesus that you're picturing in your head is smiling and full of happiness and laughter as this is happening because these were times of un speakable joy in the history of the world. So let's jump into our study, Matthew 28. We're gonna begin in verse 11. It says, now while they, and just to refresh your memory, the they that Matthew refers to here are the group of women, minus Mary Magdalene, who have just encountered the risen Jesus and gone to tell the disciples that Jesus is alive. Last week we studied what happened when they reached and told the disciples the good news. The disciples didn't believe them. And they're just mentioning here in Matthew something else that was taking place at the same time as they were going to tell the disciples about Jesus. So this group of women goes to tell the disciples about Jesus. We're just simply cutting to a different scene from the same movie. And what Matthew was saying is, meanwhile, while that was going on, this was also going on. So it says, now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. So some of the Roman guards who were assigned to guard the tomb of Jesus go to the Jewish religious leaders, probably in a very panicked state, and they say, an angel showed up last night and he was so powerful and so glorious that we all passed out from shock and awe. And when we woke up, the stone had been rolled away and the tomb was empty. So we all ran away. And if Pilate, who's the Roman governor, if he finds out that we've lost the body of Jesus, we're going to be killed. You've got to help us. It says in verse 12, when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they, the Jewish religious leaders, gave a large sum of money to the soldiers saying, tell them, his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. So they give the soldiers enough money to distribute among everyone who was one of the guards 
as a bribe. And they tell them, hey, if anyone asks what happened, you tell them the disciples came and stole the body of Jesus while you were sleeping at night. And if the report gets back to Pilate, we'll also bribe him to look the other way and not punish you. Which means you're talking about a significant amount of money to bribe the governor of Judea. So the religious leaders get an excuse for why the body of Jesus is missing and the Roman soldiers get a bribe and they get to live despite losing the body of Jesus. And here we have the first and and one of the most enduring myths that's still repeated to this day about what happened to the body of Jesus, the conspiracy between the Roman guards and the religious leaders to spread the story that the disciples of Jesus stole his body while the guards slept. Of course, it doesn't make any sense that the guards would know what happened if they were sleeping. If, how would they know that it was the disciples who took it? But it was the best story that they could come up with. And it's a sad commentary that when confronted with Gentile non-believers telling them an angel opened the tomb, the religious leaders immediately go to work covering it up rather than dealing with the truth. They were absolutely determined to not believe in Jesus. And what a blasphemous thing to use temple funds to cover up the resurrection of the one the temple was built to worship. No wonder the temple would be destroyed in 70 AD. Didn't really stand for anything at this point. At this point, I'm gonna ask you to turn with me to Luke 24. Flip ahead a couple of gospels to Luke 24 and we'll pick it up in Luke 24, 13. Again, we're just jumping around to keep these events in chronological order so that everything makes as much sense as possible. Luke 24, 13, now behold, Two of them were traveling that same day to a village called, now here's the thing, you all know this as Emmaus, but that's totally wrong. I looked it up. It's Emmaus, okay? So when I say that, I'm not saying that to be a snob. I'm simply saying it to prove that I know more than everybody else who's ever told you the story, okay? Just to be clear that my motivation's totally pure, which was seven miles from Jerusalem, So these men, they're not disciples of Jesus, but we will find out that they are Jewish and they are sincere seekers of God. And and according to verse 18, one of them was named Cleopas or Clopas. It's the same name in the original Greek. John 19.25 tells us that Clopas's wife was named Mary and that she was part of the group of women that was at the cross, likely at the tomb, that encountered the resurrected Jesus on the way to tell the disciples that he was alive. And most Bible scholars agree that this Cleopas on the road to Emmaus is the husband of that Mary. And if that's right, then then it seems that his wife was one of the disciples of Jesus, was a disciple of Jesus, not one of the 12, but a disciple of Jesus. But he was not yet fully convinced. He's like, okay, go to your Bible study with Jesus. That's cool. Let's see where this goes. Verse 14, it says, And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. These two guys are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, which is about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. They're talking about the fact that this Jesus has been crucified and talking about all these rumors flying around Jerusalem that there was a conspiracy between the governor and the religious leaders and all of these things when when all of a sudden Jesus walks up behind them and just joins their conversation. But in a supernatural way, God keeps them from recognizing Jesus. 
This means that, that even, this is probably because even though they weren't disciples, they probably knew what Jesus looked like. They had probably been to some of his teachings, they had probably seen him perform miracles, and they would have recognized him by sight. He was a very well-known person. But the Holy Spirit and Jesus hides his identity from them at this point. Verse 17, and he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Underline the word sad. It's funny because Jesus knows exactly what they've been talking about. And yet he's having some fun by asking them like, why are you guys so bummed out? Verse 18, then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And you have not known the things which happened there in these days? He's just saying, have you seriously not heard what everyone is talking about in Jerusalem? Verse 19, and he said to them, what things? Can't you just feel Jesus enjoying himself in this conversation? I sort of imagine him like having to rub his beard to hide the fact that he's smiling when he says, you know, what things? What things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Like practically everyone who had followed the ministry of Jesus, they were hoping Jesus would bring about radical change in Israel, something like defeating the Romans and when Jesus was crucified, everyone was shocked and no longer believed there was any chance he could really be the Messiah, but they still regarded him as having been a true prophet. And so people were trying to figure out, what, what does this all mean? We also learn here that some sort of rumor about the third day had spread. Something about how Jesus had said several times in his ministry that he would rise from the dead on the third day. And these guys are saying, and, and today is the third day and nothing seems to have happened. And then they go on to share that some, some strange things have actually been happening today and they're trying to figure out what in the world is going on because it seems like nothing's changed but we're hearing these strange stories at the same time. Verse 22, yes, and certain woman of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. This is why I believe that Cleopas' wife was part of that group of women. It says right here that these two men knew some of the women who were part of that group that stayed with Jesus and his body through his crucifixion and burial. And they had heard an incredible report from those women. Verse 23, when they did not find his body, they came saying they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. So they're saying, my wife and her ladies' Bible study, you know, they claim that they saw angels saying that this Jesus was alive. And our friends went to the tomb and went to check it out. And sure enough, the tomb was empty and the body was gone. But we have no idea what's going on. All this means is just the body of Jesus is missing and strange stories are flying around. These guys are not convinced. Verse 25, then he said to them, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? In other words, Jesus says, wasn't it necessary for Messiah to suffer all these things? Wasn't this prophesied over and over in the scriptures? You all know what the word of God said. You just didn't believe it would actually happen. Jesus is shaking his head with a, a grin on his face as he says, how, how could you have missed it? 
I made it so clear. I talked about it so much in the scriptures. As I've shared before, if, if Jesus expected his followers to recognize his first coming based on Bible prophecy, don't you think that he also expects his followers to recognize the time of his second coming based on Bible prophecy? Especially when you consider that the Bible says around three times more about his second coming than it did about his first. If you want to start learning about what the Bible has to say about the second coming of Jesus, I recommend you start with the book of Revelation and start going through our study online. So make a note of this and then I'll talk more about it. Jesus expects his followers to understand and believe in Bible prophecy. He expects his followers to understand and believe in Bible prophecy. And the reason I emphasize this is because in the modern church, Bible prophecy is generally considered a, a fringe focus, a side hobby of a few people, a strange interest for those who want to pursue it. He's kind of a weird guy, you know, into Bible prophecy and that sort of thing. When the reality is that Bible prophecy is something that Jesus expected everyone who loved God to be into. Everyone. So the question is, well, who's supposed to be into Bible prophecy? And the answer is, everyone who loves God, everyone who loves Jesus, everyone who can't wait for him to come back again. Verse 27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, expounded, that means he explained to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now that would have been a Bible study. That would have been a Bible study. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having Jesus explain to you how he's woven through the entire Old Testament? That's what he did for these two men. How many of those Old Testament references did Jesus cover in this Bible study? All of them. All of them. It says he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning themselves. I'm looking forward to hearing that Bible study one day. He explained that the Old Testament system of sacrifices all pointed to his sacrifice on the cross. He, he pointed out the passages that specifically prophesied his crucifixion. He showed them all the types that pointed to him, parts of the lives of David and Joshua and Moses and others, and he revealed to them the passages of Scripture that nobody had even realized yet were talking about him as the Messiah. If you want to get a, a taste of what we're talking about here, the very first message we did in our study on the life of Jesus was called Jesus in Predictive Prophecy. It's on the church's website and it goes through just some of these prophecies that Jesus would have shared with these men. I find it interesting that it says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets. Because apparently, Jesus did not get the memo from liberal seminary scholars who claim that Moses didn't write the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, because Jesus makes the embarrassing error of beginning his Bible study at the beginning of Scripture with the writings of, quote, Moses. And so we can only hope that Jesus later became as enlightened as some Bible scholars are. Verse 28, it says, Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther, but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. So Jesus pretends like he's going to keep walking. See you guys later. And the guys are like, what? 
We're not done with this Bible study. Why don't you stay with us tonight and have dinner and keep telling us more about this. Verse 30, now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread. So they're sitting down to eat a meal together. Jesus has been invited to join them as their guest. Breaking the bread and passing it out would have been something for the host of a meal to do. So what's happening is Jesus is being invited in, but when he's invited in, he immediately assumes the role of host as the head of the meal. And that's how it works in our lives. If you want to invite Jesus into your life, he'll gladly accept the invitation, but but only one way, to come in as Lord and Savior, as the king of your life, as the master, as the host. He's not interested in coming into your life as a guest. He's interested in coming in as the Lord and master. It says he took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. So picture this now in your mind. When Jesus stretches out his hands to pass them the bread, what would they have seen? They would have seen the scars in his hands. And that's why the next verse reads, then their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished from their sight. When they saw the scars in his hands were told, then they knew him. Then they knew him. If you're a non-believer, if you're a seeker, even if you're a believer and and you want to know Jesus, there's something in you that says, I want to understand him. I want to know what he's all about. I want to really get who he is. The answer is found in the scars of Jesus that point back to his work on the cross. If you want to know who Jesus really is, look to the cross. His character, his love, his power, his strength, his compassion, his mercy, his grace, it's all there. Write this down. The cross reveals who Jesus is. The cross reveals who Jesus is. His suffering, his death, his resurrection, That's where you get to know who Jesus is and what he's all about. Perhaps you've had one of those moments where things in your life are seemingly spinning out of control and you find yourself thinking, don't you love me, Lord? Don't don't you love me? And as you make your way to the table of communion or as you get into the word, as you take a moment to pray, you find that Jesus is there waiting for you with his hands stretched out And as you notice the scars in his hands, he says, do you have a question? And all you can say again is, no, no, I don't. I don't have a question. And instead you find yourself praying, Lord, forgive me for ever wondering if you love me because you settled that over 2,000 years ago at a place called Calvary. Like these two men in your life and in my life, we will have times where the Lord is so close that he's, he's practically tangible. I'm talking about those, those rare moments when you actually feel God. And if you've had one of those times, you know how absolutely incredible and precious they are. You, you feel his literal presence and then you don't. And we wonder, why did you leave? Why did you have to go? And the answer is because the Lord wants us to live by faith. The Bible tells us that that faith is so important. There's nothing we can do to please God without it. Nothing we can do to please God without faith. 
And the Lord is determined to teach each of us and grow us into men and women of faith. There's nothing he won't do to grow us into people of faith. Why? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but I know it has something to do with eternity. Who we're going to be and what we're going to do for the next billion, trillion years. Whatever it is, faith seems to be a really, really big deal in the kingdom of God. Which means it's not just something for this life. It's something that's going to affect our eternity. Because if there's one thing God is working on all the time in your life and mine, it's growing us into men and women of faith. Calling us to trust him in a greater and greater way. You won't have to follow Jesus for very long before you realize faith is a big deal. And so the, the challenge is laid down. Even though we don't feel him for a season, will we choose to walk by faith and believe that he's still keeping his promise to never leave us or forsake us? And you might be in the place of crying out, I need to feel you in this season, Lord. And if that's really true, if you really need to feel God in this season, if your faith would completely collapse if you didn't, then you will, then you will. But most of the time, you won't collapse. It's just the discomfort of getting into better spiritual shape. When you start working out, speaking from painful experience here, after years and years and years of not working out, you'll have an experience with this horrible movement called burpees, where, where, where basically you, you fall on the floor, push yourself up to your feet, and jump up and like clap your hands over your head. You'll have an experience with burpees where you will feel like you're going to die if you do one more. You're going to be murdered on the gym floor. And then your coach will yell at you, all you have to do is fall down and get up again. You can do one more. You begin to learn that your, your pain and discomfort are actually leading to growth. And sometimes we wish that we could feel God. And we think, I'm going to die if I don't feel you, Lord. But what God says is, hey, you know, the truth is your faith is actually stronger than you think it is. I've put more faith in you than you realize you have. And so right now, you're going to keep going so that you can begin to understand that there's more in you than you realize. I'm doing more in you than you realize. And the day is coming when you're going to understand why we had to go through this whole faith thing. So make a note of this. In eternity, it will be clear why faith is more important than feelings. In eternity, it will be clear why faith is more important than feelings. And so I want to encourage you, if you're in the place where you haven't felt God for years, you haven't felt him for a long time, and you feel like something's wrong, nothing's wrong. The Lord is just growing your faith. Either he's doing that, or the Lord is working on getting you to that next level and you've just got to make the decision to trust him. One of the things when the Lord is trying to, trying to teach you a lesson in a good way, in a loving way, is that lesson will just repeat over and over and over until you learn it. That's a really good thing to learn about the spiritual life, you know. Lord, how many times are you going to try and teach me the lesson of patience till you learn the lesson of patience? And eventually what happens is you begin to realize, you know what? This might actually be easier if I just chose to trust God and actually chose to walk by faith. 
instead of constantly doubting God and later on having to say, sorry, I didn't trust you again, Lord. So maybe you're in that place and, and you're just full of doubt and you're full of fear and you're thinking, why can't I feel God? That's because God is saying, because this is the 37th time I'm giving you to try and just have faith. Just believe so that we can move on from this. So if you're there, trust the Lord. He deserves your faith. In our current earthly bodies, we can perceive three dimensions. Current quantum physics theorizes that at least 10 dimensions exist. Four that we can interact with and six that we can only infer. Obviously, we don't know exactly how many dimensions are. I always say, somebody says there's 10 dimensions, how are you gonna argue with that guy? Okay, but I think there's 11 personally, you know. Uh, So we don't know how many there are, but we understand there are more dimensions than we can perceive. One or more of those dimensions, I think we can confidently say, would include what we refer to as the spiritual realm, the unseen dimension of the spiritual world that's talked about in the Bible. In his resurrected body, Jesus is able to move through all dimensions. He doesn't just have a, a different body, he now enjoys an entirely different dimensionality. Again, if that's not a word, you can't really correct me because you don't know if it's not a word. He enjoys a complete different dimensionality, which is why he's able to just pass through the linen strips when he returns to life in his resurrected body. He can just move through. If you're trapped inside a box that has three dimensions to it, you can't get out of it because you and I exist in three dimensions. Jesus exists in more, and so he can just pass right through it. There's a way out that box if you exist in more than just three dimensions. In his resurrected body, he's gonna do things like appear and disappear seemingly out of nowhere. This is why we'll see him able to move through walls and seemingly teleport great distances at will. Resurrected bodies are gonna be really, really, really awesome. Verse 32, and they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the 11. Just so you understand, after the resurrection, that term the 11 refers to the rest of the disciples. They say the 11 because Judas has killed himself by this point. But when it says the 11, it might not necessarily be all of the 11. We know in this instance that Peter is not there and we'll find out Thomas isn't either. So it's just a blanket term for the disciples at this point. And those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. That would be Peter. So at some point before Jesus appeared to these two men on the road to Emmaus, he appeared to Peter. Now here's the thing. We have no details about that meeting between Peter and Jesus, that first meeting, other than the fact that it's mentioned here and is mentioned by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.5. This is just for you Bible nerds. It's a passage where you might be familiar with it, where Paul records a creed that was recited by the early Christian church. It's that passage where he says, you know, we share with you what was first shared with us. And then he quotes this creed, which covers the core points of the gospel and was recited by churches to help them memorize what the gospel was. And in that gospel, it says that Jesus appeared first to Peter. 
That's not the interaction with Peter where Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? That's coming much later. This is an interaction we have no record of other than the mention here in Luke and the mention by the Apostle Paul when he quotes that creed. We don't know what they talked about. It's a little bit of a mystery to us. So we know that Peter was actually the first disciple to see the risen Jesus. Verse 35, and they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them and then underline in the breaking of bread. There it is again. He was known to them in the breaking of bread. If you want to know who Jesus really is, you want to know him, start with communion. Start with the cross. In Mark's gospel, it tells us this, and they went in and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. The disciples still don't believe. John tells us that it was now the evening of the Sunday on which Jesus was resurrected. And the disciples were in the upper room. This is likely the same upper room where they ate the Last Supper. And the doors are locked because they're terrified that the Jewish religious leaders are coming for them too. Verse 36. Now as they said these things, no, we don't believe you, we don't believe you. As they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them. Again, it's just my personal belief. Jesus is really having fun. He waits for them to say that. He's like, oh yeah, now's the time. Now I'm going to do it. He stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. Now, this scene is always shown in the movies in a really serene sort of way. You know, there's like the, the light strum of a harp. Which is how Jesus travels with a harp at all times. And then, you know, Jesus slowly comes into focus out of some sort of light fog with, with light beams shining out of them, but, but nothing too bright. And then he says very slowly, you know, doing, doing that thing, peace to you. And all the disciples smile. That's not how this went down. It's not how this went down. They're in a locked room, they are all on edge. Some of them are, are, are pacing around nervously going, what are we going to do? 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 They're terrified that any second there's going to be a pounding on the door and a voice is going to yell out, temple police, open the door, and they're going to be taken away to be killed just like Jesus was. Into that atmosphere, Jesus suddenly materializes. Can you picture this? The disciples do not clap their hands and go, yay, it's Jesus. They don't do that. It's what are we going to do, what are we going to do, what are we going to do? Oh my God! Jesus is like, correct. And they're diving behind sofas. They're knocking over furniture as they try to find somewhere to run. But there's no way to run because this is just a small room. They don't want to go outside because the Romans could be outside. They're just losing their minds. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Ah! And Jesus is like, guys, 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 peace to you. It's all good. It's all good. Again, more evidence Jesus is enjoying himself. Verse 38. And he said to them, why are you troubled? He materializes out of thin air and then says, why are you troubled? Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And John adds that he also showed them his side. 
Jesus shows them his wounds to prove it's really him, that he really had risen from the dead. And this also tells us that when we receive our resurrected bodies, it will still be us. We'll still be recognizable to people. We'll know each other in heaven. We'll recognize each other in heaven. Verse 41, but while they still did not believe for joy. I love that phrase. They still did not believe for joy and marveled. So now they're overjoyed. They still don't believe, but, but it's now not believing in the sense of the, it's too good to be true. They're just saying, how, how is this possible? How, how are you here? Everyone's smiling and laughing, but just struggling to wrap their heads around the fact that Jesus is here with them. I imagine that, that Jesus is laughing and smiling as he said to them, have you any food here? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. Sorry, vegans. And he took it and ate in their presence. You see, in Jewish culture, it was believed that, that a spirit, a poltergeist, a ghost, could not eat food. So in addition to having them touch his body and his wounds, Jesus eats food in front of them specifically to prove that he's not merely a ghost. He's in a real physical body. So write this down. The disciples personally verified that Jesus was alive in a physical body. They personally verified he was alive in a physical body. They didn't hallucinate. They touched his body. They gave him food and watched him eat it. The disciples personally verified that Jesus was alive in a physical body. We're going to turn ahead one more gospel to John for just a few additional details of what happened next in the upper room. Turn with me to John 20, verse 20. John 20, verse 20. And we'll pick it up halfway through that verse. John 20, 20, back half says, Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Jesus explains to the disciples that he's now commissioning them. He's giving them a mission, just as his father had given him a mission. And their mission is going to involve going out with the good news of Jesus, the gospel. After Jesus returns to heaven 40 days later, the disciples will from that point be known as the apostles. It's a Greek term that means ones who are sent away. What Jesus is doing with the disciples is similar to a country commissioning somebody to be an ambassador, a representative of that country in a foreign land. That's what you and I are. We're representatives of the kingdom of Jesus on the earth. Write this down. Jesus has commissioned all believers to be his ambassadors on the earth. Jesus has commissioned all believers to be his ambassadors on the earth. We represent the kingdom of God in an alien country. That's the idea. Verse 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. I gotta dive into depth a little bit here. Uh, this is something you may be thinking, well, why is this necessary? But this is to give you a clear understanding of what's actually happening here. M many Bible teachers will teach that this is the moment the disciples receive salvation. While Pentecost, which is recorded in Acts chapter two, which happens 40 days from now, is the moment that they receive what's known as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. To put it another way, many Bible teachers will teach this is the moment the disciples receive salvation in the sense that is described by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1. It's on your outline, which reads, when you believed, 
you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So as soon as you put your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into you like a seal marking you as saved and guaranteeing that you belong to Jesus. That's what happens to every believer at the moment of salvation. And then it will be taught that on the day of Pentecost, 40 days later, the disciples received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What is that? Well, Jesus described it to them this way. It's also in your outlines from Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit was this separate event promised by Jesus where the disciples would receive power from God for the purpose of representing him all over the world. Two different events. Holy Spirit comes in to believe into the believer at the moment of salvation. The Holy Spirit comes on the believer with power to give them the power to represent Jesus, to do things like overcome fear, be bold, and have faith in God. We believe that these two events in the life of a believer can happen separately or at the same time. God can do it Either way, I've known people that it happened to them at the moment of salvation. I've known people that those events were separated by years. If a person knows that they're saved but seems to have no power to live the Christian life, we would ask the question, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Have you received that power that God can give you? It doesn't mean you now float around the world healing the sick and not afraid of anything. But you know, for me, when I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, one of the things that happened for me is every trace of doubt was removed from my life. And I received a supernatural gift of faith in God that went way beyond anything that I had ever had before. It was just a done deal, a settled issue for me. It was the power to live the Christian life. And that's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is all about. So when you read Acts 1-8, where Jesus promises the baptism of the Holy Spirit, when you read Acts 2, when they received it on the day of Pentecost, when you observe the change that happens in the disciples from that point on, it's clear that was the moment they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But when it comes to the moment of salvation for each of the disciples, it's not as clear to me, if I'm honest. Here in verse 22, when Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, they're clearly receiving something they didn't have up until that point. That's the only logical deduction we can make. So we have to assume they didn't have the Holy Spirit up to that point. That's the moment they're receiving the Holy Spirit as described in Ephesians 1, which again says, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. This is the moment they're born again and they become New Testament believers. Understand that up until this point, before Jesus died and rose again, when someone believed in God, they did not receive the Holy Spirit. Why? Because their sins had not yet been forgiven. So they're sinful. So the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, could not dwell within them. The only reason you and I can have the Holy Spirit come and live inside of us is because Jesus has forgiven us because he's paid for our sins, which means that as messed up and as sinful as our human nature is, our spirit becomes born again and becomes completely sinless, which is a suitable habitation for the Spirit of God. Before Jesus died and rose again, making payment for sins, the Holy Spirit could not come and live inside anybody. So they are the first group of believers to be born again as New Testament Christians. 
But that doesn't necessarily mean they weren't saved before that point. What? I'm referring to the fact that people were saved as what we call Old Testament saints. That's a reference to everyone who was saved before Jesus died and rose again. We're talking David, Moses, Joshua, all these guys. How were they saved before this? If you lived before Jesus came to the earth, you would be saved by faith in a coming Savior. On the other side of the death and resurrection of Jesus where we are, we are saved by looking back to Jesus and believing in what he's done. Those who lived before Jesus died and rose again were saved by looking ahead and believing in faith that God would make a way for them to be saved in the future. That's how David, Moses, and Joshua were saved. As we talked about last week, I know if you missed last week, you might be a little lost. As we talked about last week, if you died before the death and resurrection of Jesus and you had placed your faith in God, you would go to the pleasant side of the dimension of death known as Hades, the side known as the bosom of Abraham in scripture, and you would wait there until the day Jesus made payment for your sins. That day came when Jesus died and rose again, which is why there's no Old Testament saints in Hades today. But there are indicators in scriptures that the disciples were most likely saved, at least some of them, as Old Testament saints, so to speak. Most notably, this interaction that Jesus has with Peter in Matthew 16. It's on your outlines. You'll remember this one. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Messiah the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Peter recognizes and confesses Jesus as Messiah, quote, the son of the living God, and then Jesus responds by telling Peter he's blessed because that revelation was given to him by God. It's really hard to say that Peter wasn't saved as an Old Testament saint at that point. He's received revelation from God. He's believed it. Another example would be something that Bill actually pointed out to me after the service last week. In Matthew 28, the resurrected Jesus appears to the group of women who's just left the empty tomb and were told, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell who? My brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So Jesus referred to the disciples as my brethren, which means my brothers, before he had seen them and breathed on them here. Calling them my brothers is a relationship that would seem to be impossible unless the disciples were already saved. All that to say that here in verse 22, they're receiving the Holy Spirit as Paul describes in Ephesians 1 and they become the first documented New Testament believers. But most of them were most likely Old Testament believers too before this moment. Well, I know that none of that changes your life. I hope it gives you some clarity and understanding as to what's going on in verse 22 and what's gonna happen in Acts chapter two. Then Jesus goes on to tell the disciples, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, Jesus is not giving the disciples the authority to forgive or not forgive 
sins, contrary to what the Catholic Church may believe. He's telling them, guys, you've seen me rise from the dead. You understand the gospel now. You know that I've paid for all sin on the cross. So you can boldly declare with absolute certainty that any sinner who repents and turns to me is forgiven. And likewise, you can also declare with absolute certainty that any sinner who does not repent is not forgiven. And I base that on what the disciples practiced and proclaimed in the rest of Scripture. You see, when a verse seems confusing or weird, the first thing you always want to do is look at what the rest of the Bible has to say about that issue or topic. That is the antidote to make sure that you don't take a verse out of context. You say, what does the rest of the Bible say about this topic? Because the Bible is always consistent. It will never say one thing here and then the polar opposite over here. If it ever appears to, you're reading one of those two things wrong. In this instance, we can also look in the book of Acts into what the disciples did. We can actually read about how they ministered to people. And then we can actually read about what they wrote in the other books of the New Testament. And when we do both those things, we find the disciples only ever pointing to Jesus as the one who forgives sins. Believers, including the apostles and you and I, don't have the power to provide forgiveness. But we do have the privilege of proclaiming that there is forgiveness through Jesus. So write that down. Believers don't have the power to provide forgiveness, but we do have the privilege of proclaiming forgiveness through Jesus. We can't provide it, but we are called to proclaim it. And just a quick side note, Thomas the disciple was not with the other disciples when Jesus appeared to them in this first instance. We're going to read about what happens when Thomas encounters the risen Jesus for the first time next week. In Luke 24, 17, Jesus asked the two men on the road to Emmaus, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? As you walk and are sad. By the time Jesus leaves them, they will be overwhelmed with joy and happiness, saying, did not our hearts burn within us while he shared the scriptures with us? The antidote that Jesus gave them for their sadness was a Bible study about him, about who he is and what he came to the earth to do. Their sadness was a direct result of them not having a proper grasp of scripture and not believing the scriptures that they already knew. They weren't like, oh, I've never heard this prophecy before. They were Jews. They were taught it from birth. When Jesus talks with them about the Old Testament, they're not cracking open scrolls. Jesus can just refer to scripture and they know what he's talking about because they've got so much of it memorized. See, the issue is that they didn't believe the scriptures that they already knew. They didn't actually have faith in it. And the focus of Jesus' Bible study with these two men was the promises of God, prophecies regarding the future. Joy and peace are found always in embracing and believing the promises of God about your future and about how he says he's going to take care of you. And joy and peace are found by shifting the focus off of yourself 
and onto Jesus and who he is. You know, the more you obsess about yourself, the more depressed you'll be. It's the great irony of, of, of our culture that says, you know, you, you have to love yourself before you can love anyone else. That's far from true because the more you look at yourself, the more depressed you're going to become. If you're being honest, there is great power in being delusional. The more you look at yourself, the more depressed you'll be. But, but the more you look at Jesus, man, things begin to change. And you begin to have self-esteem, not because you think you're wonderful, but because as you look at Jesus, you go, I cannot believe how much he loves me. I cannot believe what he went through for me. I cannot believe the value he places on me. And suddenly, by looking at Jesus, you find your value and you find your worth through how much Jesus has valued you. Rather than looking at yourself and trying to convince yourself you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. Because you know deep down you're not. But when you look at Jesus, man, that, that sorrow begins to lift. So after a meal with Jesus, these two men went from sad to glad. After breaking bread with Jesus. The table of communion, breaking bread with Jesus, is available to you and I all the time. It's available this evening. To go fellowship with the Lord, to, to contemplate his love for you, to look and think upon his scars, think upon the cross, and remember how much he loves you. That fellowship is available to you. If you need to have a heavy heart lifted this evening, you are not the solution. The solution is shifting your focus to Jesus. That's why whenever you're depressed or sad, that voice in your head, the first thing it says is, you should probably skip church. You should probably skip reading your Bible. There's no point fellowshipping with the Lord in prayer. That voice says that because it knows that shifting your focus to Jesus is the thing you most need to do. And lastly, I'll say this. When you think of Jesus, I want to make sure that you think of him as he is today. He's not on the cross anymore. I don't know why people have pictures of Jesus on the cross. He's not there anymore. He's not in the tomb either. He's no longer the rabbi from Nazareth. He is resurrected, glorified, bearing the name that is above all names, sitting on the throne that is above all thrones. He is before all things, and in him all things are held together. He's literally holding the universe together. That's the position he's in right now. And I want to challenge you to make sure that when you think about Jesus and what he's like today, that the Jesus you picture is the Jesus of Revelation chapter 1. The resurrected Jesus. In fact, I encourage you this week, go back and read Revelation 1. Who Jesus is. What he's like today. Maybe go through our study on that chapter again. And make sure that you're not picturing the, the crucified, beaten Jesus. Because that's not who he is today. He's alive. He's God. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. And when he comes to the earth again, it's going to be a completely different story.
He's come as the lamb once. He's coming as the lion when he comes again. I can't wait. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's, let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much that if we want to know who you are, we don't need to go and study for eight years at some lofty academic establishment. We don't need to make some pilgrimage to some monastery in Tibet. All we have to do is look to the cross where you laid down your life for us, paid for our sins, and then the empty grave where you rose in victory over death so that we could be raised with you to eternal life. Lord, it is in the breaking of bread that we know you, who you are. It is that simple. Everything that we need to know about you is on the cross, in the empty grave, in the breaking of bread with you. That's where all those issues were settled, Lord, and all the rest of our studies, all the rest of our pursuits to, to know you more. It's just to know every little detail about you because we love you so much. But Father, in, in all those pursuits, in all those questions, help us to never, ever, ever get away from the beautiful simplicity of knowing you in the breaking of bread, in communion, at the cross. You love us, you've saved us, and you've put your spirit in us so that we can live for you as your ambassadors. Thank you that you didn't design a system where we're to follow you out of guilt or out of shame or out of obligation. But you loved us while we were still sinners. You died for us while we were still sinners. So that we could live motivated by gratitude, not obligation. And we are so grateful, Lord, for what you've done for us. Help us to live well as ambassadors for you, representing the, the love and the kindness and the grace and the compassion that you've shown. And Lord, not dumbing that down to simply being nice people, but proclaiming the message of your kingdom that there's forgiveness of sins through Jesus. Fill us with boldness to share that message, Jesus. Father, I pray for any among us that, that may be wrestling with depression or sadness or heaviness of heart. Father, we've all been there and I pray in the name of Jesus that you would shift their focus from their own lives, from their own circumstances, from their own shortcomings onto you that you would lift their head to you. That as they look upon you, as we contemplate you, that God, hearts would be lifted too. Spirits would be lifted. As we meditate and think upon your promises and your faithfulness, your perfect, unfailing faithfulness. May joy and peace flow among us, Lord. You are always what we need. You're always what we need. 
We love you, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.